This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit kuiper.org to download this book or purchase a physical copy. The Politics of God and the Politics of Man Essays on Politics, Religion and Social Order by Stephen C. Perks Copyright 2016 Stephen C. Perks The Kuiper Foundation Taunton, England Christianity and Politics The history of Christian thought and practice relating to the political sphere of life presents us with two contradictory ideals, both of which claim to be based on Scripture. On the one hand, there are those who claim that Christianity is not a political faith, that essentially the life and message of Jesus Christ do not address the issue of politics, and therefore that the gospel does not apply to the nations politically. In other words, it does not apply to nations as nations, but only to nations as they are considered as collections of individuals. The message of the gospel is essentially individualistic. In this sense, there is no such thing as a Christian politician, only Christians who are also politicians. The Christian faith applies to these people as individuals and affects the way they live their own lives and therefore their personal witness is capable of having an indirect effect on the political process by modelling personal virtues that hopefully others, including politicians, will emulate in their own lives. This principle applies in the same way to those with the political franchise so that it will affect, for example, the way they vote at political elections. But the gospel is not seen as addressing directly the issue of how politics should be done, how nations should be ruled. In other words, how the state is to conduct its business. There are no political principles that can be applied directly to the theory of how the state should order its life. Although those who espouse this view usually claim that their views are biblical, this claim is based exclusively on an appeal to the New Testament. It does not take into account the teachings of the Old Testament. The political virtues, ideals and principles set forth in the Old Testament, although recognised as being directly applicable to Israel prior to the coming of Christ, are deemed to have become obsolete with the inauguration of the Christian era, or at best can now only be applied to individual Christians and churches by means of indirect analogy with the spiritual life, spiritualization. The New Testament is believed to have replaced the political focus of the Old Testament with a focus that concentrates on the individual and on the church as an apolitical devotional institution. This understanding of the nature of the Christian faith as essentially apolitical was represented among Protestants by certain groups associated with the Radical Reformation and survives in the traditions of the pacifistic Anabaptists and the Protestant pietistic sects, which have borrowed heavily from Anabaptist theology. For example, according to the Anabaptist brethren who composed the Schleitheim Confession, 1527, quote, It will be observed that it is not appropriate for a Christian to serve as a magistrate 
because of these points. The government magistracy is according to the flesh, but the Christians is according to the Spirit. Their houses and dwellings remain in this world, but the Christians are in heaven, and their citizenship is in this world, but the Christians' citizenship is in heaven. The weapons of their conflict and war are carnal and against the flesh only, but the Christians' weapons are spiritual against the fortification of the devil. End quote. Likewise, the Hutterite Peter Breiderman said that, quote, No Christian is a ruler, and no ruler is a Christian. End quote. Another good example of this perspective is a statement by Lord Hailsham that, quote, The Christian religion itself, being concerned with grace and love, is, despite much that is written and asserted at the present time, very largely devoid of political or social doctrine. This is not so of the Old Testament. End quote. On the other hand, there are those who argue that Christianity does have a direct application to the political sphere, that the state should be a Christian institution, and that it should order its business in obedience to God as his servant and in accordance with political principles derived from Scripture. Those who espouse this ideal also claim that this is a biblical ideal, but their appeal to Scripture is inclusive of both Old and New Testaments. In seeking to understand what the New Testament says about how Christians are to relate to the political sphere of life, the Old Testament is believed to have an important role in providing the proper context for interpreting the New Testament. This understanding of the Christian faith as having a direct political relevance and application to modern life was represented among Protestants by the magisterial reformers, Heinrich Bullinger, for example, in his treatise. A brief exposition of the one and eternal testament or covenant of God taught that, quote, The judicial or civil laws of the covenant provide rules for the maintenance of peace and public tranquility, for punishing the guilty, for waging war and repelling enemies, for the defence of liberty, of the oppressed, of widows, of orphans, and of the fatherland, and for the making of laws of justice and equity relating to the purchase, the loan, possessions, inheritance, and other legal subjects of this sort. Are not these things also included in that very condition of the covenant which prescribes integrity and commands that we walk in the presence of God? Now, if anyone thinks that this opinion of ours is not valid or clear enough, let him consider the very deeds of Abraham, whom the Apostle calls the father of all believers. Romans 4.11 Abraham certainly endured faithfully within the covenant of God and walked uprightly before him. Insofar as judicial, civil or external affairs are concerned, Abraham conformed to certain principles in punishing crime, in making covenants, in declaring war, in preserving possessions and public peace. And these principles are nothing else than what purity of the soul, sincerity of faith, and love of virtue and the neighbour dictated. Indeed, much later, Moses, speaking for God, taught the Jewish people to observe the same principles, insofar as it pertains to the same substance and sum of the matter. For 
These are also the obligations of piety or necessities for the holiest of churches, so necessary that without them they could not properly exist, and they have never existed apart from them without danger. In connection with that, according to the word of the Lord, Matthew 13, there will always be tares in the field of the Lord, nor will it ever be without them. For the Lord did not wish the tares to be uprooted, because their uprooting would ruin the wheat, that is, the righteous and the holy church. So Jesus said, quote, Allow both to grow, lest while you gather together the tares, you at the same time uproot the wheat with them. End quote. But who doubts that those same tares ought to be cut off with the scythe of justice, when their excessive and untimely strength and quantity tends towards the subversion of the church? Furthermore, the saints consist not only of spirit, but also of flesh. As long as they live on this earth, they do not entirely lay aside the human shape and totally turn into spirit. But also their laws are made to order external dealings among people in their social life. For these reasons, they need magistrates and the work of the civil law covering many subjects. What is more strange than the insanity that drives those who exclude the magistrate from the church of God, as if there were no need of his functions, or who consider his functions to be of the sort that cannot or ought not to be numbered among the holy and spiritual works of the people of God. Nevertheless, those deeds of Abraham which are truly judicial are praised by the Holy Spirit of God as among the first and most excellent works. Therefore that same Abraham, insomuch as he was named the father of all believers by the apostle and called a friend of God prior to the law, possesses a foremost place in the true church of Christians. He, nevertheless, exercised judicial powers. End quote. Bullinger goes on to point out that, quote, In respect to the Decalogue and civil laws, no difference at all has arisen regarding the covenant and people of God. For everywhere the love of God and the neighbour, faith and love, maintain the mastery. End quote. Similarly, John Calvin says that, quote, The Lord has not only testified that the office of magistrate is approved by and acceptable to him, but he also sets out its dignity with the most honourable titles and marvellously commends it to us. To mention a few, since those who serve as magistrate are called gods, Exodus 22.8, Psalm 82.1-6, let no one think that their being so called is of slight importance, for it signifies that they have a mandate from God, have been invested with divine authority, and are holy God's representatives in a manner acting as his vicegerents. But Paul speaks much more clearly when he undertakes a just discussion of this matter. For he states both that power is an ordinance of God, Romans 13.2, and that there are no powers except those ordained of God, Romans 13.1. Further, that princes are ministers of God for those doing good unto praise, for those doing evil, avengers unto wrath, Romans 13.3 and 4. To this may be added the examples of holy men of whom some possessed kingdoms, as David, Josiah and Hezekiah, 
others lordships, as Joseph and Daniel, others civil rule among free people, as Moses, Joshua, and the judges. The Lord has declared his approval of their office. Accordingly, no one ought to doubt that civil authority is a calling, not only holy and lawful before God, but also the most sacred and by far the most honourable of all callings in the whole life of mortal men. Those who desire to usher in anarchy object that, although in antiquity kings and judges ruled over ignorant folk, yet that servile kind of government is wholly incompatible today with a perfection which Christ brought with his gospel. In this they betray not only their ignorance, but devilish arrogance, when they claim a perfection of which not even a hundredth part is seen in them. But, whatever kind of men they may be, the refutation is easy. For when David urges all kings and rulers to kiss the Son of God, Psalm 2.12, he does not bid them lay aside their authority and retire to private life, but to submit to Christ the power with which they have been invested, that he alone may tower over all. Similarly, Isaiah, when he promises that kings shall be foster fathers of the church and queens its nurses, Isaiah 49.23, does not deprive them of their honour. Rather, by a noble title he makes them defenders of God's pious worshipper, for that prophecy looks to the coming of Christ. But, most notable of all, is a passage of Paul where, admonishing Timothy that prayers be offered for kings in public assembly, he immediately adds the reason, quote, that we may lead a peaceful life under them with all godliness and honesty, end quote, 1 Timothy 2.2. 2. By these words, he entrusts the condition of the church to their protection and care, end quote. Likewise, Martin Luther states that, quote, worldly governments as a glorious ordinance and splendid gift of God, who has instituted and established it and will have it maintained as something men cannot do without. If there were no worldly government, one man could not stand before another, each would necessarily devour the other, as irrational beasts devour one another. Therefore, as it is the function and honour of the office of preaching to make sinners saints, dead men live, damned men saved, and the devil's children, God's children, so it is the function and honour of worldly government to make men out of wild beasts and to prevent men from becoming wild beasts. It protects a man's body so that no one may slay it. It protects a man's wife so that no one may seize and defile her. It protects a man's child, his daughter or son, so that no one may carry them away and steal them. It protects a man's house so that no one may break in and wreck things. It protects a man's field and cattle and all his goods, so that no one may attack, steal, plunder or damage them. It is certain then that temporal authority is a creation and ordinance of God and that for us men in this life it is a necessary office in a state which we can no more dispense with than we can dispense with life itself, since Without such an office, this life cannot continue. That being true, it is easy to understand that God has not commanded and instituted it only to have it destroyed, 
on the contrary. He wills it to have it maintained, as is clearly stated by Paul in Romans 13.4 and in 1 Peter 3, 2.13-14. To protect those who do good and to punish those who do wrong. Now, who will maintain this office except us men to whom God has committed it and who truly need it? End quote. The difference between these two positions can be summarised by saying that the one maintains that church and state should be completely separate, disestablishmentarianism, while the other maintains that the church should be recognised by the state and the Christian religion established in law, anti-disestablishmentarianism. Those who reject establishment of the church argue that such a position is incompatible with the nature of the Christian faith. Underpinning this argument, is the fact of the persecution of heretics by Christian states in the past. This critique of the religious persecutions that have taken place in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is believed to demonstrate the incompatibility of the Christian virtues with those qualities deemed necessary for effective political rule. It is my belief, however, that this argument is profoundly mistaken. But it is not merely profoundly mistaken Worse, it is an argument that will inevitably lead, and has already led, to the denial, in practice, of the Great Commission, and indeed to the very antithesis of the Great Commission, namely the decommissioning of the nations as Christian nations, and the inevitable recommissioning of idolatry as a religion of the state that such a process entails. Although those who hold to this erroneous belief may be quite oblivious to such an outcome. The reason for this is that religious neutrality is impossible in any sphere of life. It is not possible, therefore, to engage in an a-religious politics. Abraham Kuyper stated this truth in the well-known aphorism, No single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest, and there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! End quote. There is no area of religious neutrality in the whole of creation. In everything we think, say and do, including what we think, say and do politically, we are either for Christ or against Him. There is no middle way, no neutrality. But what about the persecutions? Does this mean that the persecution of non-believers and heretics in Christian states is acceptable? Nothing could be further from the truth. Such persecution is unacceptable without any warrant in Scripture and has no part in a biblically informed understanding of the role of the state. I therefore fully endorse criticism of the many religious persecutions that have taken place in the history of the Church. It is true that Protestants have also persecuted people for, quote, religious crimes, unquote, that have no warrant in Scripture, that such persecutions have been not merely tragic mistakes, but constitute serious miscarriages of justice, and that reputed justification for such persecutions has been unbiblical. Nevertheless, I disagree with the philosophy underpinning the arguments of those who believe that these persecutions validate the complete separation of church and state. There is a difference between arguing 
for a separation of the powers of church and state and arguing for a complete separation of church and state. This is an important distinction. An argument for the separation of powers does not necessitate a complete separation of church and state. While a Christian view of the state that is consistent with the whole of Scripture necessitates a separation of powers, it must reject the complete separation of church and state. Why? Section 2. The Establishment Principle The establishment of the Christian religion as the religion of state necessarily involves recognition of the church as an independent public legal institution with their own sphere sovereignty, forming part of the societal structure of the nation. Ultimately, there can be no establishment of Christianity as a religion of state without the establishment of the church, the Christian ecclesia, as a societal institution with their own sphere sovereignty. The attempt to establish Christianity as a religion of state without the concrete realisation or incarnation of that religion in an historical community is ultimately meaningless. The practical means necessary for the manifestation of Christianity as the established religion of state is the existence of the Christian Church as an independent societal institution with their own sphere sovereignty. Without any formal link between church and state, Christianity cannot be said to be established in any meaningful way. Without separation of the powers and functions of church and state, it cannot be said that there is any difference between church and state. Establishment of the Christian religion, therefore, necessarily requires recognition by the state of the church as an independent, public, legal institution with her own sphere of sovereignty. It is this recognition of the church by the state that constitutes the establishment principle, not any formal acts of establishment by the state. Quote, the Church of England as a whole has no legal status or personality. There is no act of parliament that purports to establish it as the Church of England. The relationship which the state has with the Church of England is one of recognition, not the devolution to it of any of the powers or functions of governments. End quote. This is an important point for the perhaps inaptly named establishment principle, although the coronation service does speak of the quote, Protestant Reformed religion established by law. End quote. Properly speaking, the state does not and should not attempt to establish the church. For the state to do so would be presumptuous. Rather, the state recognizes the church. Nevertheless, the ecclesiastical law of the Church of England is part of the law of the land. Quote, the law is one, but jurisdiction as to its enforcement is divided between the ecclesiastical courts and the temporal courts. End quote. This establishment of the Christian faith, that is, complete separation of church and state, denies in principle the notion that the church is an independent public legal institution with their own sphere of sovereignty forming part of the societal structure of the nation, thereby making the church merely one private association among many, permitted, tolerated, but ultimately regulated by the state. The secular state acknowledges no sovereignty other than its own and is therefore in principle totalitarian in nature, just as Rome accepted the various mystery cults 
provided they were subordinated to the political supremacy of Rome, so the modern secular state will accept the church as long as she is prepared to subordinate herself to the political supremacy of the secular state by relinquishing her own sphere sovereignty. The denial of, or even failure, to recognize the independent public legal character, sphere sovereignty, of the church is a denial of the lordship and sovereignty of Jesus Christ. And it was the denial of this sovereignty by Rome and the assertion of it by Christians that constituted the dispute between the early church and Rome and that led to the persecution of Christians for treason against Rome. In other words, the implications of a complete separation of church and state are that the Christian faith has no direct application to the political sphere and that the state has sovereignty over the church. The reason that complete separation of church and state necessarily involves subordination of the church to the state is that denial of the church's sphere sovereignty is implicitly denial of God's sovereignty over society. But sovereignty is an inescapable concept. It is an attribute of deity. If sovereignty is denied as an attribute of God, or if the existence of God is denied, the concept of sovereignty does not disappear. Rather, it is attributed to someone or something else. Historically, what this means is that sovereignty is attributed to the state, either in the form of sacral rulers such as the pharaohs and divine emperors, or in the form of sovereign secular states. Both these forms of human sovereignty are idolatrous and constitute rebellion against the divinely ordained covenantal social order revealed in Scripture as the only sustainable basis for human freedom and political stability. I said above that an implication of the complete separation of state and church is that the Christian faith has no direct application to the political sphere. The operative word here is, quote, direct, unquote, since it is true that this establishment of the Christian religion would not necessarily mean that Christians would be unable to exert any influence at all in the political realm. A commitment to the principle of disestablishment by Christians would mean, however, that they would be unable to argue consistently that the state is accountable to God and that it must submit to his law and kiss the sun, that is, do homage to Jesus Christ, as the Bible commands the kings of the earth. Psalm 2, 10-12 The influence of Christians would be restricted to the effect of their personal witness generally on the culture of the nation and to requesting the state to do their bidding, lobbying, possibly on rational and moral grounds, depending on the general state of the nation and the degree of common grace operative, but only in the same way that any group of citizens, Satanists, pederasts and pedophiles included, would be able to request special dispensations from the secular authorities. They would not be able, logically, to call the nation back to obedience to God's law as a basic principle of the state's legitimacy and authority, since this would imply establishment of the Christian faith and therefore establishment of the church. In constitutional terms, the state would be, to all intents and purposes, unaccountable to God. But the state would not be religiously neutral, 
Rather, the established religion would be secular humanism or some other religion, although this may not be readily perceived or acknowledged in the case of secular humanism. The situation would be similar to that faced by Christians in ancient Rome prior to the establishment of Christianity as a religion of state. This should not be taken to imply that the settlement between church and state reached under Constantine, Theodosius and Justinian was without its problems and abuses, much less that it was an ideal form of establishment. It was a beginning, and it seems clear with hindsight just how problematic, indeed how inconsistent with scripture in many ways, that beginning was. Nevertheless, the failures of the Constantinian settlement, which were largely the failures of the Roman imperial system, with which the church was so closely identified, do not invalidate the establishment principle. But, whereas the early church could espouse Christianity as a world-conquering faith and work towards the discipling of the nations to Christ, a commitment to the principle of disestablishment, complete separation of church and state, would render such a mission obsolete. In other words, a commitment to the principle of disestablishment of the church would mean that the Great Commission itself would become obsolete, since the Great Commission is not a command to disciple individuals from among or out of the nations, but rather a command, first, to disciple the nations as nations, second, to baptize the nations, and third, to teach God's law to the nations. The very principle underpinning the Great Commission is the establishment of Christianity as the religion of the nations as nations. The principle underpinning the idea of disestablishment of the Christian faith as the religion of state is a negation of the Great Commission. The principle of complete separation of church and state underpinned much of the Radical Reformation and is today being revived in the idea of principled pluralism. The basic premise behind principled pluralism is the idea that the state should not be a religious institution and therefore that it should not interfere with religious matters in any way. Instead, it should respect and preserve people's religious freedom. It is this idea that I wish to take issue with here because the kingdom of God is primarily a political order and therefore Christianity is primarily a political faith. Religion and politics cannot be separated. Quote, politics, end quote, said Eugen rosenstock Quote, being a process of realization must be driven by the force of some unlimited faith. End quote. Politics is inevitably a religious enterprise. This is the case simply because human life is inevitably religious in nature. Consequently, politics is as much under the leading of a faith commitment as any other sphere of human activity. The Dutch Christian philosopher and professor of law at the Free University of Amsterdam, Herman Duyvoord, stated the matter in the following way, quote, The state, as such, necessarily functions in the modal law sphere of faith. In its public communal manifestations, the body politic may recognise a god above it and above the entire world order, or it may deify itself or human reason, or again, openly declare itself a self-sufficient état à thé, godless state, which only appeals to the belief in a social ideal 
and in man's autarchical power to realize it. But never can the state, as a temporal societal relationship, struggle free from the grasp of the sphere of faith within which a higher will than its own has assigned a structural function to it. This is the astounding truth which must at least arouse every wavering mind from its dreams of political neutrality with respect to the life of faith. The state can no more be neutral in this respect than science. The political slogan of neutrality is as much under the leading of an attitude of faith and as certainly originates from a basic religious commitment as any other political conviction. End quote. The question we must face, therefore, is not whether the state should be a religious institution, but rather which religion should be established as a religion of state. The state is inevitably a religious institution because man is, by nature, a religious being created by God to serve and glorify his maker. In the state of sin, man is turned away from his creator and Lord and instead of seeking the meaning and purpose of life in God's revealed will for mankind, he seeks to find the meaning of life in something or someone else. The Bible calls this idolatry because it places some aspect of the created order, whether ideological or physical, in the place of God, who alone is the one in terms of whom ultimate meaning is to be sought. When the state rejects God as the source of its authority and power, the one who alone defines its purpose, it engages in idolatry. Men will either serve the God of the Bible or they will serve some idol of their own making. This is inevitable. Men may be unaware of their idolatry, but this does not mean that they are not idolatrous. All of human life is religious, and therefore politics is inevitably a religious enterprise. The state, therefore, may not be a Christian institution, but it will necessarily be a religious institution. A secular humanist state is a religious state no less than a Christian or a Muslim state. It will therefore serve some god of its own making, whether this is the ideal of democracy, socialism, any aspect of the created order, or indeed, as with the modern secular state, itself. In other words, it will engage in idolatry. The Bible condemns this. The state, no less than the church, must honour God and acknowledge his rights by ordering its work in accordance with his will, as this has been revealed in Scripture. Section 3. The Function of the State Of course, it is not the duty of the state to proclaim the Christian faith and compel people to believe the truth. The state has no authority or power from God to do this. The power of the state is the sword. Coercion and the use of force to compel belief is ineffective since, quote, he that complies against his will is of his own opinion still, end quote. The task of proclaiming the faith and discipling the nations, the Great Commission, is given to the church and the means to be used is the preaching of the gospel. But, This does not mean that the state must not order its work according to the light of God's word, that it must not bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and serve him in all that it does. Psalm 2, 10-12 How, then, is the state to serve God if it is not called to preach the gospel? The calling of the state 
is to administer public justice. If the state, as God's servant in this matter, is to do this properly, as Paul clearly teaches in the New Testament, Romans 13.1-6, what constitutes the public justice that the state is called to uphold must be defined by God's law, as this has been given to us in Scripture, and it is the duty of the state to uphold God's law as it relates to the sphere of public justice. Even where those guilty of acts defined as criminal offences by that law believe action by the state in such matters to be a violation of their religious and civil liberties. Compare 1 Timothy 1, 8-11. In such cases, people are not persecuted for their beliefs. Rather, they are punished for their crimes. There is a difference between tolerating the beliefs of non-believers, heretics, and those who worship false gods, and tolerating criminal actions that are the fruit of such beliefs. It is the latter only that the state must suppress by the use of force, not false beliefs, but what constitutes the crime that the state must suppress must be defined by God's word, and therefore the state must look to God's law to guide it in its calling as the servant of God. This means, for example, that Muslims should not be permitted the religious freedom to establish Sharia law in the United Kingdom for their own Islamic communities, since this would be a fundamental denial both of the biblical principle that one law should be applicable to the entire nation, Exodus 12.49, Leviticus 24.22, Numbers 15.15, and the English common law principle that the law of the land should be in accord with the law of God, that, quote, any law is, or of right ought to be, according to the law of God, end quote. The state must enforce the common law of the land, which should be Christian law, even when Muslims believe this to be a denial of their religious freedom. This is a pertinent example of the problems posed by the doctrine of complete religious toleration as understood by secular humanists. Both the fatwa condemning the author Salman Rushdie to death, which led to criminal acts being committed in the United Kingdom by British Muslims seeking to demonstrate their support for the fatwa, and the increasingly frequent cases of honour killings in the United Kingdom demonstrate the naivety of the ideal of complete religious liberty. The state may not turn a blind eye to these religious crimes and must, when necessary, use force to bring the perpetrators of such crimes to justice. No doctrine of religious freedom or toleration should be permitted to interfere with the state's duty in this matter. These are crimes, and the state is authorised by God's law to use force in dealing with criminals. This is not merely an Old Testament doctrine, but a New Testament doctrine also, as Paul teaches in Romans 13, 1-6, and 1 Timothy 1, 8-11. The state is called to administer public justice without regard to the person and religious or any other grounds. The state, therefore, must pursue public justice as this has been defined by the law of God. The state must go this far, but no further. It is my belief that, in the past, Christian states have often gone far beyond their biblical mandate and engaged in the persecution of heretics. And with regard to this, I again fully endorse criticism of such persecutions. Nonetheless, the state is no less bound to obey God's law in its definition of crime and its responsibility to uphold public justice 
as defined by God's word. Therefore, the state must look to God's law as the standard that defines public justice. It must, in the entirety of its work, seek to conform itself to the precepts of God's law as it seeks to perform its duty. The state is every bit as much the servant of God as the church, Romans 13.1-6, and therefore it is inevitably a religious institution. In our criticism of the persecutions that have taken place in the name of Christ, we must not lose sight of this fact. It is not the task of the state to persecute people for not believing the truth or for believing error, nor is it the duty of the state to abridge the liberty of non-believers on account of their disbelief, but it is the duty of the state to punish people for their crimes, and it is the duty of the state to define crime in terms of God's law. Of course, not all law in Scripture is law that should be enforced by the state, that is, statute law. The Hebrew word Torah means instruction, doctrine, as well as law. Much law in Scripture is given as instruction and guidance for the individual, the family and the church. And we must be ever mindful not to confuse those laws given to the church with those given to the state. It is my belief that on many occasions the church has indeed confused the two and assumed that the state must enforce laws that were given to govern the church. This confusion was evident in the beliefs and practices of not only the medieval papacy, but also, to a lesser extent, of the reformers and Puritans as well. This is a confusion of the boundaries of those two different spheres. It is my belief that principal pluralism also confuses these two spheres of the state and church, assuming that, because the state may not administer church law, therefore the state has no duty to enforce God's law at all. This is equally mistaken. Where the Bible gives law that relates to the magistrate's duty to administer public justice, the state must take notice and order its work in accordance with Scripture. Section 4 The Secular State and Persecution We must not forget, also, that it is not only Christians who have been engaged in religious persecutions and murdered men for their beliefs. The record of secular humanist states is worse, not better, than that of Christian states. Modern secular states have slaughtered more innocent people in pursuit of their secular humanist utopias than any other form of religious establishment in history. While it is true that much violence has been committed in the name of Christianity and Islam throughout history, it is secular humanism that has proved to be the most intolerant and persecuting of all religions. It has been estimated that the total number of people killed by state repression between 30 BC and 1900 AD, excluding war, was 133 million while the number killed by state repression from 1900 to 1987, again excluding war, was 170 million. The campaign of terror unleashed on the world by the French Revolution, that is, the religion of secular humanism, is a fire that has never ceased to burn in some part of the world since its inception, and has bought, and still brings, untold misery and suffering to countless people. This Religion of secular humanism has its own doctrines of orthodoxy 
political correctness, for example, and secular states have persecuted fiercely those who have refused to submit to their secular belief systems. Quote, Nazism and Stalinism, said Denis de Rougemont, have each had a pope and infallibility, hierarchies, orders, forms of worship and dogmas, and inquisition more effective than the other, that is, Roman Catholic inquisitions, in the eradication of heresy from the utmost recesses of the cerebellum, end quote. Aldous Huxley stated the problem well, quote, In medieval and early modern Christendom, the situation of sorcerers and their clients was almost precisely analogous to that of the Jews under Hitler, capitalists under Stalin, communists and fellow travellers in the United States. They were regarded as the agents of a foreign power, unpatriotic at best, and, at the worst, traitors, heretics, enemies of the people. Death was the penalty meted out to these metaphysical quizzlings of the past, and, in most parts of the contemporary world, death is a penalty which awaits the political and secular devil-worshippers, known here as Reds, there as reactionaries. In the briefly liberal 19th century, men like Michelet found it difficult not merely to forgive, but even to understand the savagery with which the sorcerers had once been treated. Too hard in the past, they were at the same time too complacent about their present and far too optimistic in regard to the future, to us. They were rationalists who fondly imagined that the decay of traditional religion would put an end to such devilries as the persecutions of heretics, the torture and burning of witches. But looking back and up, from our vantage point on the descending road of modern history, we now see that all the evils of religion can flourish without any belief in the supernatural, that convinced materialists are ready to worship their own jerry-built creations as though they were the absolute, and that self-styled humanists will persecute their adversaries with all the zeal of inquisitors exterminating the devotees of a personal and transcendent Satan. Such behaviour patterns antedate and outlive the beliefs which, at any given moment, seem to motivate them. Few people now believe in the devil, but very many enjoy behaving as their ancestors behaved when the fiend was a reality as unquestionable as his opposite number. In order to justify their behaviour, they turn their theories into dogmas, their bylaws into first principles, their political bosses into gods, and all those who disagree with them into incarnate devils. This idolatrous transformation of the relative into the absolute and the all-too-human into the divine makes it possible for them to indulge their ugliest passions with a clear conscience and in the certainty that they are working for the highest good. And when the current beliefs come, in their turn, to look silly, a new set will be invented so that the immemorial madness may continue to wear its customary mask of legality, idealism and true religion. From about 1700 to the present day, all persecutions in the West have been secular and, one might say, humanistic. For us, radical evil now incarnates itself not in sorcerers and magicians, for we like to think of ourselves as positivists, but in the representatives of some hated class or nation. The springs of action and the rationalizations have undergone a certain change, but the hatreds motivated and the ferocities justified are all too familiar. End quote. 
Other estimates put the number of people killed during the 20th century by secular states in pursuit of the religious ideals of secular humanism between 110 and 231 million. Within the period of a single century, secular humanist states have persecuted and put to death more people than those killed throughout history by Christian and Islamic states combined. The modern British state, under the dominating influence of secular humanism, is now increasingly anathematizing and persecuting those who refuse to kowtow to political correctness, and many Christian values and beliefs that conflict with secular ideals have already been subject to such intense criticism that adherence to these values and beliefs is treated as a kind of heresy that must be extirpated from the land by means of laws that criminalise those who refuse to accept the practice of political correctness. The 2004 Gender Recognition Act and the 2006 Racial and Religious Hatred Act are good examples of just such intolerance and the willingness on the part of secular humanists to use the full coercive power of the state to enforce their belief system on society and to punish those who refuse to submit to the new orthodoxy. The abandonment of Christian values in the political sphere is not leading the nation towards more religious freedom at all, but rather towards a vicious type of secular humanist inquisition that has already shown itself to be relentless and utterly brutal in its persecution of those whom it considers to be heretics. Section 5. Conclusion It is true, of course, that the history of Christendom has been marred by the murder of heretics. But the freedoms that people in the West have rightly enjoyed for so long, and which they continue to proclaim so eagerly, despite increasing curtailment of individual freedom by the modern secular state, are not the product of secular humanism and its doctrine of complete religious liberty, that is, total liberation from the law of God. They are, rather, the fruit produced by the Christian cultures of Protestant nations that have sought to apply the biblical doctrine of man's legitimate and limited freedom under God's law in the political sphere. This biblical doctrine of man's freedom under God's law is the source of all our true freedoms, as opposed to mere license to commit crimes, which is what we increasingly have under the rule of secular humanism. And virtually all the blessings of our civilization, which secular humanists today wish to attribute to the abandonment of the Christian faith and the triumph of autonomous human reason. But these freedoms and blessings are the fruit of human reason held captive by the grace of God in Christ and the ordering and development of our civilization under the influence of the gospel and law of God, not the religion of secular humanism. We have yet to see secular humanism's martyrs die in their thousands that others might be free to worship God according to their consciences. These freedoms are the fruit of a Christian civilization and of the witness of Christian martyrs who have died in their thousands throughout the Christian centuries, including those who died for their commitment to the Magisterial Reformation. While condemning the unjust and murderous persecution of heretics by Christians in the past, we must not lose sight of the benefits that Christendom has brought to mankind. Islam offers no freedom for non-Muslims, Christians included, despite the fact that much more has been made of the status of so-called, quote, people of the book, end quote, 
in Islamic states than can be justified historically. And it is becoming increasingly evident with the passing of legislation aimed at suppressing Christian values and beliefs by modern Western states that secular humanism, once it has reached full maturity in terms of its fundamental principle of unbelief, that is, once its own brand of fundamentalism has become institutionally dominant in the form of a totalitarian state, something that has not yet happened in the post-Protestant West, but comes closer with every day that passes, will oppose in theory and practice everything that Christianity stands for and offer no more freedom to Christians than Islam does. The persecution of heretics by the Church and by Christian states for beliefs and practices that are not defined as crimes by God's law is unjust, and any attempt to justify such persecutions on historical, theological, or any other grounds is morally perverse. But it would be no less perverse to cast off the countless benefits of the establishment of the Christian faith as a religion of state because of the mistakes of previous generations of Christians by adopting a secular political ideology, since the fruit of the latter, for example the secular humanist witch hunts and persecutions, will prove, and indeed have already proved, to be far worse than the persecutions of heretics in Christendom, and the benefits will be non-existent. The corrective to abuse is never disuse, but proper use. We are called to confront our generation with the gospel of God. We must also acknowledge the errors of the past. But we must equally lay before men and nations the claims of God as the only hope of a remedy for those errors. The Christian faith is a public truth, not a devotional mystery cult. It applies to the whole life of man. The gospel of God the good news of salvation from sin through the merit of Christ's life, death and resurrection, requires us to call all men everywhere to repent of their sin, Acts 17.30, and turn to Christ in faith and obedience to his law, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. And this means inevitably also that the state must bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, submit to his word and order its work in accordance with his will, as this has been revealed in Scripture. Psalm 2, 10-12, Romans 13, 1-6. Excursus, Definition of Terms, Section 1, Church. There are problems with the use of the English word church. We use the word in a variety of ways to mean different things, usually without defining what we mean by it, and very often without even being aware ourselves that we are using the same term in different ways to refer to different things. This leads to confused thinking and consequently to misunderstanding. In order to avoid these problems, we need to understand something of the etymology and history of the word and its use, and we need to be careful in our use of the term to make sure that we understand ourselves and indicate clearly to others what we mean by it. The English word church comes from the Old English Kiriki, or kirk, which is derived from the Greek word kirikon, meaning God's house, a popular 4th century form of the Greek word kiriakon, an adjective meaning imperial, of the Lord. This Greek word was used of, quote, the Lord's house, to kuriakon doma. The English word church is derived via this root from the Greek adjective 
Kyriakos. This adjective is used only twice in the New Testament, however, and in neither instance does it have reference to the Greek word ecclesia, which is the word usually translated as church in English translations of the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 11.20, it is used of the Lord's Supper, kuriakon diepnon, and in Revelation 1.10, it is used of the Lord's Day, enti kuriakos imera. Nowhere in the New Testament is this term used to refer to the Lord's house. Strictly speaking, therefore, the notion or concept of the church is not part of the New Covenant, though it is, of course, part of the Old Covenant, that is, the temple. The concept of the church, that is, a building and its appurtenances set apart as a special sanctuary for Christian worship, is not found in the New Testament and is not a feature of the New Covenant. In his translation of the New Testament, William Tyndale did not use the word church to translate the Greek word ecclesia and rendered it more accurately throughout as congregation. Nowhere in Tyndale's translation of the New Testament do we find the word church used of the assembly or community of believers. The New Testament does not identify the ecclesia as the house of the Lord, that is, a building and its appurtenances, but as the people of God, a covenant community called out of the world of sin and unbelief into fellowship with God as his holy nation, 1 Peter 2.9. Unfortunately, Subsequent translations of the Bible into English, including the Geneva Bible, did not follow Tyndale's lead in this matter and mistranslated the Greek word ecclesia as church. The Greek word ecclesia is derived from a Greek verb, ekaleo, meaning to call out or summon forth. The noun, ecclesia, is a political term, meaning an assembly of the citizens regularly summoned, the legislative assembly. In its use of this term, therefore, the New Testament stresses not only that members of the body of Christ are called out of the world of sin and unbelief, but that they are also called into participation in a new political organism, a new community or society with its own distinctive social order, the kingdom of God. The English word church is used in most English translations of the Bible to translate the Greek word ecclesia. However, As we have already seen, this is a mistranslation, since the ecclesia is not a building but an assembly of the people, constituted as a body politic. There were, strictly speaking therefore, no Christian churches in the New Testament. Believers met in their homes or in other places. But there were no specially designed buildings set apart for Christian worship. There was the temple, of course, and there were synagogues, where the first Jewish Christian probably worshipped on the Sabbath, but they were soon obliged to leave these, and they worshipped elsewhere on the Lord's Day, the day after the Jewish Sabbath, and Gentile Christians never worshipped in the synagogues. Originally, however, the term synagogue did not refer to a building either, but to a gathering of people, an assembly from the Greek word synago, meaning to gather together and was used of local communities of Jews who met together on the Sabbath for worship, instruction in the law, and for educational and social purposes. That is to say, it referred to a people, a community, not to a building, and only came to signify a building at a later date 
because of its use as a metonym for the building in which the community met. It was exactly the opposite with the term church, that is to say, the building, which is properly called a church from the etymological point of view, came to signify the community of Christians that met in it. According to the concise Oxford Dictionary of Current English, the English word church can mean 1. A building for public worship 2. A meeting for public worship in such a building then with the first letter capitalised, capital C, church 3. The body of all Christians 4. The clergy or clerical profession 5. An organised Christian group or society of any time, country or distinct principles of worship 6. Institutionalised religion as a political or social force. In this book, I use the word church without any capitalization to refer to the building and sometimes with reference to the rituals and forms of service that take place in the building. This corresponds to the concise Oxford Dictionary's definitions 1 and 2 mentioned above. The use of the word, uncapitalized, is not to be understood of the church as an institution, which is a wider concept than the church as a building and the rituals and forms of service that take place in the building. I use the word church, with the first letter capitalised, to refer to the body of Christ, the Christian people or society, as an organism, that is, the Christian nation, which includes the church as an institution, but is not limited to the church as an institution. The church as an organism is a much wider concept than the church as an institution and refers to the Christian nation or society. Where I refer to the church, again with the first letter capitalised, specifically as an institution, that is, as a cultic organism with ministers for governing a specific sphere of social life, in contrast to the church as an organism, it will usually be apparent that this is the case from the context. Nevertheless, where I think there may be a misunderstanding, I've made my intention clear in a text or in a footnote. I do not use the word church to mean the clergy or the clerical profession. Section 2. Religion The term religion is commonly confused with the term theism. Theism refers to belief in a personal, supernatural God from theos, the Greek word for God. Theistic faiths are often religions, certainly the three main monotheistic faiths, Christianity, Judaism and Islam are religions. But not all religions are theistic. Religion refers to the belief system or worldview that structures human thought, life and society. The word religion comes from the Latin word religio, which means obligation, bond, Reverence for the gods from the verb religare, meaning to bind. The root of religio is lig, to bind, and is cognate with the word lex, meaning law. Inevitably, religion brings obligation, duty, that is, life in accordance with an obligation that binds man. Religion, therefore, structures life. It structures the thought and life of the individual and of society. Christianity, Judaism and Islam are clearly religions that structure human thought, life and society. They are also theistic religions. 
Secular humanism is a belief system or a worldview that structures human thought, life, and society. It is, therefore, a religion, but it is not theistic. Someone who does not believe in a personal supernatural God is not a religious. He is merely a theistic. His religion is atheism. Although the religious nature of secular humanist beliefs is not acknowledged by many people, some secular humanists do recognize that secular humanism is a religion. See, for example, the Humanist Manifesto, 1933. The preamble to which speaks of quote religious humanism. The United States Supreme Court has also defined secular humanism as a religion. Quote. Among religions in this country which do not teach what would generally be considered a belief in the existence of God are Buddhism, Taoism, ethical culture, secular humanism, and others. End quote. Section three: Politics, political, political realm. I use the words politics and political in two ways. One. In the narrow or specific sense, to refer to the sphere of civil government—that is, the work of the magistrate or state—and two, in a wider sense, to refer more generally to the way the life of both the individual and society should be governed. The concise Oxford Dictionary of Current English defines the word politics as quote, "the art and science of government." End quote. The whole of life is political in this wider sense. In other words, it is the outworking of the law of an ultimate authority—that is, a god—in the totality of life, whether that god is a personal supernatural being, such as the god of the Bible, an ideology or philosophy, such as socialism, or even man himself as a self-proclaimed autonomous individual, anarchy. I use the words. Politics and political, in this wider sense, to include spheres and institutions other than the state, for example, family and church, which should be governed according to God's word, as should the state, and which do not derive their life or forms of government from the state, but from God via His word. The Bible teaches that God has committed the government of all the nations into the hands of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah nine six and seven, Matthew twenty eight eighteen to twenty, Revelation eleven fifteen, and that the nations owe an absolute allegiance and obedience to him in all things, Psalm two one to twelve. In this sense, the whole of life is about the politics of God. That is how we are to be ruled by God's word as individuals, as families, and as a society, since God's kingdom encompasses all things. In heaven and on earth, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. The legitimate work of the state is one aspect or sphere of the rule of Jesus Christ as King of Kings, one aspect of His kingdom. There is no independent political sphere of life in which man does not owe obedience to the ruler of nations, who has delegated his rule to various institutions that are independent of each other and limited in authority. The state is only one of these institutions, but the Lord Jesus Christ rules over all things. His kingdom has no limits. 
Since politics is about how men are governed, and all power and authority have been given to Jesus Christ, the whole of life is political in this wider sense. That is, it is about how man is to subject himself obediently to God in all things by governing himself, his family, and his society according to God's law, and thereby pursue the coming of the kingdom of God above all else. Matthew 6.33 However, I use the terms political sphere and political realm to refer to politics in the narrow or specific sense, that is, the work of the state or civil government. Section 4. State Civil Government Magistrate I use the term state to mean the civil government or what used to be called the magistrate or civil magistrate, in other words, the Ministry of Public Justice. This concept of the state is a narrow one that is by no means shared by much of modern political thought. In the perspective of humanistic socialism, for example, the state is conceived in much broader terms, nearer perhaps to the concept of the nation than to that of the civil magistrate. As a Christian, I do not, of course, accept the socialist concept of the state nor its vision of society, since it is a reductionist vision of mankind and society, that is, a vision that absolutizes and therefore idolizes one aspect of the created order above other equally legitimate aspects of creation that exist independently of the state. I use the term state as a synonym for civil government or civil magistrate. The concise Oxford Dictionary of Current English defines the state as, quote, an organised political community under one government, a commonwealth, a nation, end quote. I accept only the first part of this definition. The state is the political government of the nation, in a narrow or specific sense, the political sphere, which is one aspect of society, one aspect of the nation, namely the Ministry of Public Justice. The nation includes all the other spheres of life as well as the political sphere. The state, therefore, should confine itself to the activities of a civil government or magistracy. However, the concept of civil government or the state as a ministry of public justice includes the executive, legislative, judicial, diplomatic, military and law enforcement functions of the state. My restriction of the function of the state or civil government magistrate to that of administering public justice is not intended to exclude any of these necessary functions of the civil authorities, but it is intended to restrict such aspects of the state's work to their proper sphere of authority. All these aspects of the function of the state find their purpose in terms of the establishment and maintenance of public justice. Multiculturalism The tension that large-scale immigration has caused in some cities and large towns in the United Kingdom and other Western countries is usually represented by British politicians and by the British media as a race relations problem and multiculturalism. One of the chief shibboleths of the new atheist religion of secular humanism is endlessly championed as the answer to this problem. Unfortunately, the real nature and meaning of multiculturalism has been misunderstood by politicians and media people alike and, 
with the tension created by the presence of large Islamic and Hindu communities in British cities, has been defined in terms of race. But this is a serious mistake. Culture does not have its origin in race. And the constant obsession with race by the media and politicians in British society only exacerbates the problem since it reinforces the prejudices of fanatics while offering no meaningful analysis of the problem. Indeed, it gets in the way of a better understanding of the problem. Culture is a religious phenomenon. Christopher Dawson pointed out that, quote, From the beginning of the social way of life, which is culture, has been deliberately ordered and directed in accordance with the higher laws of life, which are religion, end quote. In other words, quote, A people's religion comes to expression in its culture, end quote. What underpins cultural differences, therefore, is not race, but religion, since culture is the incarnation of religion. Quote, Every social order, said R.J. Rushdeny, rests on a creed, on a concept of life and law, and represents a religion in action. Culture is religion externalized. End quote. Cultural tensions exist where religions come into conflict among populations. The conflict in India between Muslims and Hindus when the British Raj came to an end and India became independent was not based on racial differences but on religious differences. It is true that culture, that is, religion, as it is externalised or incarnated in particular societies, sometimes exhibits its distinctive features along racial lines, that is to say, particular races that have lived without assimilating with other ethnic groups tend to maintain their own individual cultural identity. But the fact that cultural differences sometimes break down along racial lines in this way is entirely coincidental and has no bearing on what determines a particular cultural identity. It is not race that determines culture, but rather religion. And this is also the case where racial differences between societies coincidentally correspond to cultural differences. It is vitally important that we recognise that the concept of race is, at most a coincidental fact, likely to mislead us, not an essential element of culture. If we are to understand the problems posed by mass immigration from the third world to the first world today, race is irrelevant. Religion is what counts, what determines cultural identity, and we shall not get anywhere near to solving the multicultural problems that face our societies until this fact is recognised and people are prepared to deal with the issues it entails. Section 6. Worldview The English term worldview is a translation of the German word Weltanschung. According to James Orr, quote, the idea of the quote, Weltanschung end quote, may be said to have entered prominently into modern thought through the influence of Kant, who derives what he calls the Weltbegriff from the second of his ideas of pure reason, to which is assigned the function of the systematic connection of all our experiences into a unity of a world whole, Weltgangs. But the thing itself is as old as the dawn of reflection and is found in a cruder or more advanced form in every religion and philosophy 
with any pretensions to a historical character. End quote. I use the term worldview to mean the perspective in terms of which a man understands the whole of life and the world around him. A worldview is the product of one's presuppositions and preconceptions and of the totality of one's experience of life. Everything that a person experiences will go in some measure towards forming his worldview, regardless of how self-conscious or unself-conscious he is of this, regardless even of whether he is aware of or understands the very concept of a worldview. A man's worldview is therefore personal and subjective, since each man will have a different personal experience of life, and this will have a formative effect on his worldview. A worldview can be likened to a pair of spectacles, tinted by a man's presuppositions and preconceptions about and by his personal experience of life, through which he views, perceives and understands the world around him and the nature of reality itself. Of course, man is not only an individual, but also a member of society whose understanding of life is shaped by interaction with the community of which he is a part, especially as he imbibes the presuppositions and preconceptions of the community into which he is born and in terms of which he learns to make sense of life and the world around him as he grows up. Although truth is absolute, for a man, understanding the truth always takes place in the context of a community. Man does not come to an understanding of the world around him in isolation from others, but rather in community with others. Isolation leads men to question their understanding of truth. Complete isolation from community with others will lead men to lose their grip on reality. As human beings, we understand the truth, not merely as individuals, but in relation to the community of which we are a part. There is, therefore, also a strong social component and context to man's worldview. The shared presuppositions and experiences of a community will have a determinative influence on the worldview of the individuals who constitute that community. Despite the personal and subjective nature of a person's worldview, therefore, we can speak of the worldviews of particular societies and communities which are rooted in the shared, fundamental religious beliefs of the individuals who constitute those communities. For example, we can speak of the secular humanist worldview, which is the worldview generated by the dominance of secular humanist ideas as public truth in society. We can speak of the Muslim worldview, which is the worldview generated by the acceptance of Islam as the true religion by Muslim communities. We can speak of the Christian worldview, which is a worldview generated by the acceptance of Christianity as the true religion in Christian communities. And we can speak of the atheistic worldview, which is generated by the rejection of belief in a personal supernatural God in secular humanist communities. It is also possible to have a syncretistic worldview, that is, a worldview that is the product of the conflation of two or more religious belief systems. However, I also believe that the Bible gives us a worldview of its own, a worldview that gives us an objectively true view of reality, in terms of which we as individuals, and as communities of faith in Christ, must seek to conform ourselves in our understanding of all things. Christianity, says James Orr, quote, is a religion 
historical in its origin and claiming to rest on divine revelation. But though Christianity is neither a scientific system nor a philosophy, it has yet a worldview of its own, to which it stands committed, alike by its fundamental postulate of a personal, holy, self-revealing God, and by its content as a religion of redemption. It has, as every religion should and must have, its own peculiar interpretation to give of the facts of existence, its own way of looking at, and accounting for, the existing natural and moral order, its own idea of a world aim, and of that, quote, one far-off divine event, end quote, to which, through slow and painful travail, quote, the whole creation moves, end quote. As thus binding together the natural and moral worlds in their highest unity, through reference to their ultimate principle, God, it involves a Weltanschung, end quote. The biblical worldview is objectively true because it conforms to the Creator's word, which is truth, John 17, 17. However, the biblical worldview is not necessarily identical with the Hebrew worldview, since the Hebrews were often in rebellion against God and apostate, and their religion was often syncretistic. Likewise, the worldviews of individual Christians and Christian communities will, to a greater or lesser extent, since they are the worldviews of fallen sinful individuals and communities that are not yet perfectly sanctified, fail to conform perfectly to the objectively true worldview given us in Scripture. This does not mean, however, that individuals and communities of faith, under the guidance and influence of the Holy Spirit, cannot increasingly conform their own worldviews to the worldview given us in Scripture, and to the extent that they do so, their worldviews, though not perfect or infallible, will nevertheless be characterized by the objective truth of God's Word. The Lord Jesus said, quote, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, that is the Holy Spirit, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. End quote. John sixteen twelve to 14 Worldviews operate much of the time at a subconscious or subliminal level. As we go about life, we often do not self-consciously assimilate the various experiences we have into our worldview or self-consciously interpret our experiences in terms of our worldview, but we do assimilate our experiences of life into our worldview and interpret the world around us in terms of this worldview, self-consciously or unselfconsciously. Some people will be more aware of their worldview than others, but everyone's worldview will operate subliminally some of the time. If, however, as Christians, we are to understand the world that God has put us in and the commission to disciple the nations the Lord Jesus has given to us, it is important that we should understand how our worldview affects both ourselves and the world we live in. If we are to understand and address meaningfully the age in which we live, and call all men and nations to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, we must be able to identify and mount an accurate and effective critique of their sin and apostasy, and be able to show how the Christian worldview differs from non-Christian worldviews, and therefore how the Christian life in its fullness and in all its individual aspects differs from the life of non-belief. 
It is important, therefore, that we should self-consciously seek to understand the biblical worldview and bring our own worldview into conformity with it. And we must seek to understand the worldviews of the societies and communities that surround us so that we can challenge them with the truth and call them to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.